Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening, children of the night. Two quick orders of business right up front. First of all, for those of you who are not on the District of Wonders mailing list, Tony has sent out a notice that there are more than two dozen of the district's Patreon members whose payment methods are being declined by the platform. This is a mix of simply cards expiring and needing to be updated, and Patreon had made a change to their payment processor, and that may have broken quite a few payment methods. So, Patreon members, thank you for your support. Without you, I'd have to desperately beg you for money every few months, and because of you, I haven't had to do that for quite some time. Our advertising revenue is helpful, but you really are our bedrock. If you would, please double-check your Patreon payment methods. Secondly, as of this recording, we've already had 45 submissions into the Moksha platform. 
as our submission window is open. We're probably going to keep it open for another week from when this episode airs, but as we work through our current submissions, we might keep it open for a couple more, depending on how many more we get and how many of the stories that we receive will be arable or not. Children of the Night, if you are an aspiring writer and have a spooky story over 2,000 words in length, send it our way and maybe you'll hear it right here on Tales to Terrify. One of the few fiction podcasts of this format that will accept stories that have not been published anywhere else. In fact, we will have one a bit later this evening. If you've got a story that's under 2,000 words, we'd be interested in that too. However, we won't be able to pay you for it. So, send us your stories. As for updates as to what horrific movies, TV shows, books, or stories I've read that you might want to, well, I've been busy and haven't had much time for extras. I have seen a couple more episodes of the Hulu show Castle Rock based on Stephen King's writings. It's still holding up for me, but I don't think I'll share additional thoughts until I'm all the way through, which hopefully will be soon. However, in the second episode, the idea is floated to the audience that Castle Rock is a place that is a magnet for terrible things, a place like no other. I spent some time thinking about statistical bell curves and that there might be some places in this world that have a higher per capita rate of horrible things than average. And following that line of thinking, I think that it could be that I'm from one of them. Shortly after college, I was helping out with an after-school program at a Methodist church. Mainly, I'd play hacky sack with the kids who were only a few years younger than me. I remember one girl, who would on occasion give a go with the hacky sack, but I remember her very dark eyes. Her irises must have been the darkest brown that eyes could be, because I remember thinking that her eyes were all pupil. Her name was also unusual. Santana. Santana Ivy. I have a particular memory of her helping out in the kitchen when the high schoolers were making lasagna to take home to their families. Eventually, that after-school program wound down and didn't pick up after a summer break. A few years later, I saw in the news, Santana had been murdered. I remember seeing the picture in the newspaper, and I had to look very closely to recognize her. The article had strongly inferred that she had been involved with drugs and prostitution. Over the course of about 12 years, there were at least four Zanesville women who had ties to prostitution who had turned up murdered. If law enforcement had ever officially concluded that there was a serial killer, I didn't hear it. And the town didn't see a lot of activity on those cases because the police don't look too hard for the killer of hookers. Just west of the edge of Zanesville between Ridge Road and Shiplet Road is a shorter road called Perrine Road. Quiet rural homes, fields, a few barns, and if you're heading north along that road just before the road begins to straighten out, you'll see a sign that warns of a one-lane bridge. Under that tiny bridge over a creek is where two of those four women's bodies were found. If you were to continue to Ridge Road, turn right, heading back towards Zanesville, and then left on Copchack Road for another mile, you'd come across a farm formerly owned by Terry Thompson. Years back, while I was working for Apple in Columbus, a guy who had just been hired found out that I lived in Zanesville and told me that a friend of his family was trying to start a wolf preserve and was looking for volunteers to help out. I told him that I was interested, and one weekday, when we were both not working, went to Terry Thompson's place. My co-workers said that Terry is a nice guy, but sometimes could get a bit abrupt. He blamed it on Terry's time in Vietnam, but said it wasn't a big deal. 
Terry gave us a brief tour, showed us his bear, his lions, his many tigers, and a few wolves. On that day, Mr. Thompson seemed distracted and hurried. I had the sense he was trying to be hospitable, but we had caught him at a bad time. After we left, I didn't follow up on the wolf preserve volunteering because it wasn't quite defined as to what I'd be volunteering for. If memory serves me right, it was about a half a year later, in the weeks before Halloween, Terry opened the cages to all of his animals and shot himself in the head. The Muskingum County Sheriff's Department put the whole county on emergency as there were eight bears, including two grizzlies, more than 15 African lions, more than 15 tigers, all loose just west of Zanesville. Law enforcement spent the day driving around slaughtering the big cats. Amazingly, Mr. Thompson was the only fatality that day. Well, children of the night, that's where I'm from. And I did have another story of a woman who was burnt to death, but it's a bit too much for me to hold in my head and heart all at once, so I'll omit it. And I know that you came here for fiction, not the nightmares that real life can bring, so I'll cleanse your emotional palate with a brief true story that happened in neighboring Warsaw, Ohio. During the time period in which the women I told you about were being murdered, in the county to the north, Coshocton County, a church chose to begin a picket for their local strip club, the Foxhole North. A popular tactic by those pearl clutchers would be to verbally abuse customers and workers and photograph license plates claiming that it'd all be published, the idea being to shame the customer. The strip club took it for only a brief time before retaliating by having topless strippers protest the church just as parishioners were arriving for Sunday service. The two organizations would regularly protest each other for about 10 years, and as far as I know, it still goes on to this day. Children of the Night, let's hear some fiction, and speaking of surrealistic predicaments, our first one comes from none other than Franz Kafka. Franz Kafka, born in 1883, was a German-language novelist and short story writer, widely regarded as one of the major figures of the 20th century literature. His work, which fuses elements of realism and the fantastic, typically features isolated protagonists faced by bizarre or surrealistic predicaments and incomprehensible social bureaucratic powers, and has been interpreted as exploring themes of alienation, existential anxiety, guilt, and absurdity. His best-known works include The Metamorphosis, The Trial, and The Castle. The term Kafkaesque has entered the English language to describe situations like those in his writing. Kafka died in 1924. Children of the Night, listen with me to the Franz Kafka classic, A Country Doctor. I was in great difficulty. An urgent journey was facing me. A seriously ill man was waiting for me in a village ten miles distant. A severe snowstorm filled the space between him and me. I had a carriage, a light one, with large wheels, entirely suitable for our country roads. Wrapped up in furs with the bag of instruments in my hand, I was already standing in the courtyard ready for the journey, but the horse was missing. The horse. 
My own horse had died the previous night as a result of overexertion in this icy winter. My servant girl was at that very moment running around the village to see if she could borrow a horse, but it was hopeless, I knew that. And I stood there useless, increasingly covered with snow, becoming all the time more mobile. The girl appeared at the gate, alone. She was swinging the lantern. Of course, who was now going to lend her his horse for such a journey? I walked once again across the courtyard. I couldn't see what to do. Distracted and tormented, I kicked my foot against the cracked door of the pigsty, which had not been used for years. The door opened and banged to and fro on its hinges. A warmth and smell as if from horses came out. A dim stall lantern on a rope swayed inside. A man huddled down in the stall below showed his open, blue-eyed face. "'Shall I hitch up?' he asked, crawling out on all fours. I didn't know what to say and bent down to see what was still in the stall. The servant girl stood beside me. "'One doesn't know the sorts of things one has stored in one's own house,' she said, and we both laughed. "'Hey, brother, hey, sister,' the groom cried out, and two horses, powerful animals with strong flanks, shoved their way, one behind the other, legs close to the bodies, lowering their well-formed heads like camels, and getting through the door space, which they completely filled, only through the powerful movement of their rumps. But right away they stood up straight, long-legged, with thick, steaming bodies. Help him, I said, and the girl obediently hurried to hand the wagon harness to the groom. But as soon as she was beside him, the groom puts his arms around her and pushes his face against hers. She screams out and runs over to me. On the girl's cheek were red marks from two rows of teeth. You brute, I cry out in fury. Do you want the whip? But I immediately remember that he's a stranger, that I don't know where he comes from, and that he's helping me out of his own free will when everyone else is refusing to. As if he knows what I was thinking, he takes no offense at my threat, but turns around to me once more, still busy with the horses. Then he says, Climb in! And in fact, everything is ready. I notice that I have never before traveled with such a beautiful team of horses, and I climb in happily. But I'll take the reins. You don't know the way, I say. Of course, he says. I'm not going with you. I'm staying with Rosa. No, screams Rosa, and runs into the house with an accurate premonition of the inevitability of her fate. I hear the door chain rattling as she sets it in place. I hear the lock click. I see how, in addition, she runs down the corridor and through the rooms, putting out all the lights in order to make herself impossible to find. You're coming with me, I say to the groom, or I'll give up the journey, no matter how urgent it is. It's not my intention to give you the girl as the price of the trip. Giddy up, he says, and claps his hands. The carriage is torn away like a piece of wood in a current. 
I still hear how the door of my house is breaking down and splitting apart under the groom's onslaught, and then my eyes and ears are filled with a roaring sound which overwhelms all my senses at once. But only for a moment. Then I am already there, as if the farmyard of my invalid opens up immediately in front of my courtyard gate. The horses stand quietly. The snowfall has stopped, moonlight all around. The sick man's parents rush out of the house, his sister behind them. They almost lift me out of the carriage. I get nothing from their confused talking. In the sick room, one can hardly breathe the air. The neglected cooking stove is smoking. I want to push open the window, but first I'll look at the sick man. Thin, without fever, not cold, not warm, with empty eyes, without a shirt. The young man under the stuffed quilt heaves himself up, hangs around my throat and whispers in my ear, Doctor, let me die. I look around. No one has heard. The parents stand silently, leaning forward and wait for my opinion. The sister has brought a stool for my handbag. I open the bag and look among my instruments. The young man constantly gropes at me from the bed to remind me of his request. I take some tweezers, test them in the candlelight, and put them back. Yes, I think blasphemously. In such cases, the gods do help. They send the missing horse even add a second one because it's urgent, and even throw in a groom as a bonus. Now for the first time I think once more of Rosa. What am I doing? How am I saving her? How do I pull her out from under this groom, ten miles away from her, with uncontrollable horses in the front of my carriage? These horses, who have somehow loosened their straps— are pushing open the window from outside. I don't know how. Each one is sticking its head through a window and, unmoved by the crying of the family, is observing the invalid. I'll go back right away, I think, as if the horses were ordering me to journey back. But I allow the sister, who thinks I'm in a daze because of the heat, to take off my fur coat. A glass of rum is prepared for me. The old man claps me on the shoulder. The sacrifice of his treasure justifies his familiarity. I shake my head. In the narrow circle of the old man's thinking, I was not well. That's the only reason I refuse to drink. The mother stands by the bed and entices me over. I follow, and, as a horse neighs loudly at the ceiling, lay my head on the young man's chest, which trembles under my wet beard. That confirms what I know. This young man is healthy. His circulation is a little off, saturated with coffee by his caring mother. But he's healthy, and best pushed out of bed with a shove— I'm no improver of the world, and let him lie there. I am employed by the district, and do my duty to the full, right to the point where it's almost too much. Badly paid. But I'm generous, and ready to help the poor. 
I still have to look after Rosa, and then the young man may have his way, and I want to die, too. What am I doing here in this endless winter? My horse is dead. There's no one in the village who will lend me his. I have to drag my team out of the pigsty. If they hadn't happened to be horses, I'd have had to travel with pigs. That's the way it is. And I nod to the family. They know nothing about it, and if they did know, they wouldn't believe it. Incidentally, it's easy to write prescriptions, but difficult to come to an understanding with people. Now, at this point, my visit might have come to an end. They have once more called for my help unnecessarily. I'm used to that. With the help of my night bell, the entire region torments me, but that this time I had to sacrifice Rosa as well, this beautiful girl who lives in my house all year long and whom I scarcely notice. The sacrifice is too great, and I must somehow in my own head subtly rationalize it away for the moment in order not to let loose at this family who cannot, even with their best will, give me Rosa back again. But as I'm closing up my handbag and calling for my fur coat, the family is standing together, the father is sniffing the glass of rum in his hand, the mother probably disappointed in me. What more do these people expect? Tearfully biting her lips and the sister flapping a very bloody hand towel, I am somehow ready in the circumstances to concede that the young man is perhaps nonetheless sick. I go to him. He smiles up at me as if I was bringing him the most nourishing kind of soup. Ah, now both horses are whinnying. The noise is probably supposed to come from higher regions in order to illuminate my examination. And now I find out that, yes, indeed, the young man is ill. On his right side, in the region of the hip, a wound the size of the palm of one's hand has opened up. Rose-colored in many different shadings, darken the depths, right around the edges, delicately grained, with uneven patches of blood open to the light like a mine. That's what it looks like from a distance. Close up, a complication is apparent. Who can look at that without whistling softly? Worms! as thick and long as my little finger, themselves rose-colored and also spattered with blood, are wriggling their white bodies with many limbs from their stronghold in the inner of the wound towards the light. Poor young man, there's no helping you. I have found out your great wound. You're dying from this flower on your side. The family is happy. They see me doing something. The sister says that to the mother. The mother tells the father. The father tells a few guests who are coming in on tiptoe through the moonlight of the open door, balancing themselves with outstretched arms. Will you save me? whispers the young man, sobbing, quite blinded by the life inside his wound. That's how people are in my region, always demanding the impossible from the doctor. They have lost the old faith. 
The priest sits at home and tears his religious robes to pieces one after the other. But the doctor is supposed to achieve everything with his delicate surgeon's hand. Well, it's what they like to think. I have not offered myself. If they use me for sacred purposes, I let that happen to me as well. What more do I want? An old country doctor robbed of my servant girl. And they come, the families and the village elders, and take my clothes off. A choir of schoolchildren with the teacher at the head stands in front of the house and sings an extremely simple melody with the words, Take his clothes off, then he'll heal. And if he doesn't cure, then kill him. It's only a doctor. It's only a doctor. Then I'm stripped of my clothes. With my fingers in my beard and my head tilted to one side, I look at the people quietly. I am completely calm and clear about everything and stay that way too, although it's not helping me at all, for they're now taking me by the head and feet and dragging me into bed. They lay me against the wall on the side of the wound. Then they all go out of the room. The door is shut. The singing stops. Clouds move in front of the moon. The bedclothes lie warmly around me. In the open space of the windows, the horses' heads sway like shadows. Do you know, I hear someone saying in my ear, My confidence in you is very small. You were shaken out from somewhere. You don't come in on your own feet. Instead of helping, you give me less room on my deathbed. The best thing would be if I scratch your eyes out. Right, I say. It's a disgrace. But now I'm a doctor. What am I supposed to do? Believe me, things are not easy for me either. Should I be satisfied with this excuse? Alas, I'll probably have to be. I always have to make do. I came into the world with a beautiful wound. That was all I was furnished with. Young friend, I say, your mistake is that you have no perspective. I've already been all the sick rooms, far and wide, and I tell you, your wound is not so bad. Made in a tight corner with two blows from an axe. Many people offer their sight and hardly hear the axe in the forest, to say nothing of the fact that it's coming closer to them. Is that really so, or are you deceiving me in my fever? It is truly so. Take the word of honor of a medical doctor. He took my word and grew still. But now it was time to think about my escape. The horses were still standing loyally in place. Clothes, fur coat, and bag were quickly snatched up. I didn't want to delay by getting dressed. If the horses rushed as they had on the journey out, I should in fact be springing out of that bed into my own, as it were. One horse obediently pulled back from the window. I threw the bundle into the carriage. The fur coat flew too far and was caught on a hook by only one arm. Good enough. I swung myself up onto the horse. 
the reins dragging loosely, one horse barely harnessed to the other, the carriage swaying behind, last of all, the fur coat in the snow. Giddy up, I said, but there was no giddying up about it. We dragged through the snowy desert like old men. For a long time, the fresh but inaccurate singing of the children resounded behind us. Enjoy yourselves, you patients. The doctor's laid in bed with you. I'll never come home at this rate. My flourishing practice is lost. A successor is robbing me, but to no avail, for he cannot replace me. In my house the disgusting groom is wreaking havoc. Rosa is his victim. I will not think it through. Naked, abandoned to the frost of this unhappy age, with an earthly carriage and unearthly horses, I drive around by myself, an old man. My fur coat hangs behind the wagon, but I cannot reach it, and no one from the nimble rabble of patience lifts a finger. Betrayed. Betrayed. Once one response to a false alarm on the night bell, there's no making it good again. Not ever. That was Franz Kafka's A Country Doctor, as read by Martin Rato. Martin Rato is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. It's been quite some time since we've heard Martin's voice on Tales to Terrify, and I'm happy that we have him once again. As always, thank you, Martin. Our second story of the night comes to us from Arthur Staz. Arthur Staz has had works podcast were published by Pseudopod, Morpheus Tales, and Gone Lawn, among other publications. He also has a story upcoming in Lovecraft Ezine Anthology. Until recently, Arthur was a senior editor for Vestarian, a literary journal, which highlights the work and influences of Thomas Ligotti. His greatest ambition is to have his readers experience hell, but only briefly. In his spare time, Arthur is a lawyer in New Hampshire. Perhaps this is the real horror. Lend me your ears for a Tales to Terrify original from Arthur Stas' Vacancies. It's cold. Colder than it should be for the middle of summer. It's been this way for several weeks, and there's no sign it's going to change. There aren't many visitors left at the seaside town. Isolated families trickle through the quiet streets, unseasonably wrapped in windbreakers and sweatshirts. Those old enough to remember are burdened by the memories of the way it used to be. Crowded promenades, bustling hordes of shoppers, packed arcades. There's none of that now. Something is wrong with the summer. It has taken a turn, like a terminal patient whose skin grows cold, 
whose lungs rattle with the accumulation of fluid. The beach is almost empty. Every so often, a few brave souls decide to take off their heavy outerwear in an attempt to soak up the chilly rays of a heatless sun. Soon, however, these hapless individuals are encased again. Close by the water, there's a shivering boy in a red windbreaker, hood up. His mother has rolled up his pant legs. Wearing a strained smile, she prods the reluctant boy to tip his feet in the sea. It doesn't feel right, Mommy, he says, recoiling from the unnaturally calm water. Day and night, there is a constant state of unease. The children notice it first. As they walk the streets with their families or sit stiffly on the beach, their eyes dart back and forth. They cling too tightly to their parents' hands, even as the grown-ups play make-believe and act like nothing is wrong. Most of the visitors who came to the seaside town are long gone. They packed up the kids, the lawn chairs, and beach towels, the coolers filled with beer and cold cuts, and fled back to their homes, where they are no longer forced to feel the nameless thing that has altered the summer by the sea, where the distractions are plentiful, where it is easier to defend their vulnerable sense of themselves. For those who stubbornly remain, something akin to a mild psychosis starts to set in. They begin talking to themselves. By day, they try to remind themselves of what a good summer is supposed to feel like. At night, they mumble in their sleep, trying to name the thing that hangs in the air and infects the water, and descends coldly from a frigid sun. The wind blows cold and clammy off the ocean, carrying with it the smell the feel of something dying. A brightly colored beach ball, abandoned on the beach, flies about the sand. It is a caricature of the summer sun with a leering smile, purple sunglasses, and flaming orange hair. All day long it storms about, assaulting the visitors. Oddly, it does not appear to follow the flow of the wind. It is as if it is driven by some malicious intent of its own as it bounds into the few beachgoers, some of whom are knocked off their feet. One man decides he has had enough. He tears after the ball as it caroms about the beach, trying to capture it, intent on letting the air out and throwing it in the trash. At times it is nearly in his grasp, but then it accelerates as if it is merely taunting him. The children grow frightened while the grown-ups just stare. The man eventually collapses by the water, chest heaving and face covered in sweat as the ball blows out to sea. He hopes it is gone. In the evening, safe behind the walls of their lodgings, the grown-ups seek escape in whiskey and vodka, beer and wine. Oblivion comes in a rental suite with two bedrooms, one with its own bathroom, and a small but very functional kitchen. There's also the tiny deck where mom and dad could, if they wished, create the illusion of holding hands and talking about the weather while sinking down into his or her drink. But they don't want to talk about the weather nor even think about it. Instead, they repose wordlessly before the large-screened TV. Soon, the attempt at escape becomes burdensome. They then retreat to their beds and huddle for warmth under the crisp sheets and thin blankets. Their heads will afflict them in the morning, but the morning seems so far away. As a cold, penetrating wind pounds away at the buildings running along the boulevard, they lay still. Each counts the days, the hours, the minutes until it will be time to leave. 
the grown-ups awaken bleary-eyed and parched after a restless night's sleep. They have all awakened from a similar dream. Slowly dissolving in some vile liquid, each person's ego has been sucked down a labyrinthine drain. On the first night of vacation, the dream is over before they reach the end of the drain. Later nights, they will wake up screaming or clawing at the walls or tearing at their bedclothes, certain they have made a long journey through a filth-encrusted sewer into an infinite cesspool. In the fog of morning, they pour out quick bowls of cereal for the kids and strong cups of coffee for themselves. Some who haven't smoked in years step out for a few moments to suck down a cigarette underneath the cold sun and prepare their defenses for the day ahead. Summer vacation is going by slowly, painfully, with a feeling like old gears slipping and grinding. Keep smiling, Mom says. Make the best of it, Dad says. They shamble out the door to take the kids to an arcade to play outdated games. Afterwards, they will consume sugar in sundry forms or feast on grease-soaked fried dough or chicken strips derived from mysterious parts of the bird. Let's take a walk on the beach, Mom says through her stiff smile. It'll be nice. The kids resist. They notice immediately that the gaudy beach ball is back. The same man is chasing the same ball, and once again it continues to elude him. The parents watch the spectacle in fascination. The ball, a mockery of the cold star that shines in the sky above them, hops and careens like an insane and chaotic acrobat. The man refuses to give up his pursuit, but once again the ball dashes out to sea. As the man slouches past them, they notice tears in his eyes. He seems to be whispering something to himself. Before noon, families decide to head for their rooms. Everyone feels exhausted and agrees a nap might be a good idea. One of the visitors, a renowned professor, visits an empty hotel bar. He is talking to the bartender, trying to decode the cryptograms written in the wind and the still water. At times, the professor sits quietly, racking his brain for what is causing these strange events. Then suddenly he is lecturing the bartender about his various theories. The lectures touch on metaphysics, theology, psychology, anthropology, sociology. The bartender listens patiently, as bartenders do. What little response he makes tends to political conclusions. He blames the government. The professor ignores him, but is no more satisfied with his own speculations. How can there be an answer to an unnameable presence that manifests in such a singular manner? He asks no one in particular. He pauses for a few minutes, rubbing his chin, then running his hand through his graying hair. After throwing back the last of his scotch, he finally continues. There is death in the air. There is no use denying it. The professor stumbles back to his room, falls into bed, and dreams the dream. The same dream as all the others, he is walking through a damp building made of shadows, when he slips and finds himself being sucked down a drain. It's lined with filth and gore, excrement, viscera, and something else. Like the professor, the other visitors wake to the smell of sewage. It will fade, but throughout the morning they feel some strange substance on their skin. As they wander the boardwalk, they rub at their arms and elbows. Before lunch, they seek out public toilets and scrub their skin with soap and water, but the feeling will not go away. At the beach, they are unsurprised to see the daily spectacle repeated. 
the ostentatious beach ball, the desperate man, the chase. The spectacle provides a distraction, however grim, for the visitors who have come to the beach only to find the days cold and damp, the nights joyless and solitary. There is no other entertainment to divert them, no music at the bandstand, no fireworks over the water by night, only this, the tragedy of a man and a ball, in which the ball always escapes and is blown far out into the ocean. Among the spectators is the professor, who has taken a special interest in the activities on the beach. He is ragged and pale, paler than the other visitors who have tried in vain to soak up rays from the chilly sun. Unlike the others, his face shows no sign that he is entertained. His nostrils flare with quick, shallow inhalations as he strokes the rough growth on his chin. His eyes never leave the man who has been chasing the ball. A wind sweeps up out of the ocean, menacing in its intensity. The few people on the beach grab their things in a panic and run. No one is left on the beach except for the professor and the man who has been chasing the ball. He stands, staring out to sea, searching the surface of the water for the unnaturally bright colors. Suddenly, the wind shifts direction and heads back out to sea. The spectators gather their children close by and cling to the railings near the boulevard. But they don't turn away. They want to see what will happen. The man is knocked over, toppled into the water. But it doesn't end there. The wind lifts him up and topples him forward again. It happens over and over. Lifted. Toppled. Lifted. Toppled. He is flung across the surface of the ocean head over heels. Finally, one of the bystanders jogs across the beach to the edge of the water. A few others trail after. Some go into the water up to their waists, and one or two even try to swim out. They don't get very far before the intensity of the wind and the strange currents in the water turn them back. Expressionless, they stand on the beach and stare out to sea. Someone spots something bouncing on the water, but it is not the man. We tried, they assure each other. It has claimed a victim, the professor shouts at them. It is useless, all useless. He points at the ocean and screams, look at it. What is it but one giant consciousness? Who can tell its depths? It is our mother. Can't you see? It wants its children back. A few of the spectators go to the professor and try to calm him down, but he won't be silenced. You think this is the end of it? He asks, laughing. You must see it's not done, not by half. He is quickly bundled off, taken back to the inn where he is staying. Still ranting, he is placed in the able care of the barkeep. Those left behind on the beach begin to trade in dreams and speculations about the restless night before and the disturbing events of the day, about the sensation of drowning in liquid filth, about the man obsessed by the chaotic beach ball and the reasons why he was taken. Inevitably, though, the conversations come back to the unnameable feeling generated by the moribund season. Something's gone, one of them says, and the others nod in agreement. She struggles for words. I can't describe exactly what that something is, but I sure can feel it. Another takes up the effort. It's like something has been extracted from the air and the sky and the water. Something 
something fundamental. Maybe a soul? Not a soul, another says. It feels to me like the something that used to connect everything is gone. The water makes me feel alone. So do the beach, the streets, the sky. One of the assembled grimaces and wipes cold sweat from his forehead. He's struggling with himself and against the growing recognition of what's happening to them. That's all hocus-pocus, he insists loudly. There's an explanation, and it's not souls or some immaterial connection. You know, changes in air pressure have been shown to affect our moods. Everyone goes quiet, but the looks on their faces make it clear they are not buying it. Finally, the remaining visitors decide, yes, it would be better to leave after all. We tried to make the most of it, they tell each other, but vacation is over. They quickly pack and head off in their vehicles, but they are soon back. The causeway is submerged. The town is surrounded by water. They are completely isolated. The mainland is not even visible. A couple of boats are quickly dispatched, but they will have to wait for them to return with help. It should arrive soon, they tell themselves. The next morning, they go about their daily routines as if nothing has changed. Breakfast, a smoke on the veranda, a walk through the town with the kids. It is even quieter now, much quieter without the deranged bouncing of the obscene ball and a desperate man chasing it. Many look hopefully to the sea and the sky. Some claim to see boats on the water, though none ever arrive. Others say it feels like there might just be a little heat coming from the sun, that its cool radiance is growing slightly more suggestive of warmth. An atmosphere of false bonhomie descends upon the small assembly of visitors. Maybe this isn't so bad after all, they think. Maybe sticking it out wasn't such a bad idea. Maybe the warmth that's been missing is coming back. As usual, everyone takes a late morning nap but they awakened unrefreshed. And not just unrefreshed, but as if sleep had been taken away from them and replaced with some strange state that is neither sleep nor wakefulness. In this state, they experience the sensation of being tossed and toppled in profound darkness, swept by delirious waves of mire rushing through aeon-crusted sewers. As a result, they wake up feeling as if they have not slept in days. Still, they remain stupid with optimism, eyes active and expectant. They head outdoors into a wind that feels like it is blowing right through them and a sun that seems to withdraw heat rather than supply it. Everywhere, they look for signs of hope. Instead, someone finds the professor at the end of a drain pipe that discharges black and brown runoff into the sea. He is lying on his back, legs submerged, staring up at the frigid brilliance of the sun, as if in wonder. A small group gathers around and stares at him, much as he stares at the sky. They are helpless, frozen. No one suggests rolling him over to try to expel water from his lungs. No one suggests CPR. Everyone believes this situation is beyond their control. There are greater forces at work here. Perhaps some obscure consciousness, though none will admit this to themselves, let alone share it with the others. People only begin to stir after someone asks, what should we do? 
Grabbing his body by the arms, they drag the corpse up from the ditch to the nearby beach where others take hold of his legs. Suspended between them, like a fleshy hammock, they heave and heave and heave, then let go, his corpse slapping into the strangely calm water. Though the rise and fall of the water has ceased and the waves have disappeared, some clandestine current pulls him out. His body is taken by a sea that is as leaden as the sky overhead is bright. After this, they once again look to the sky with hope. Something has to give, one or two of them say. That night is the windiest so far, and the parents drink even more than usual to shut out the sound of the moaning wind. Not a soul walks the boulevard or the beach. Gusts hurl themselves savagely over the top of the still ocean and against the buildings facing the water. The children cannot sleep. They burrow into their beds looking for protection under the thin blankets. To them, the sound outside is like an enormous voice calling in one continuous and long-lasting syllable. More. It rises and falls with the children's breathing until they cannot withstand the sound of it anymore, until the only thing that they can do is answer its call. The children start filtering past sofas and recliners containing their passed-out parents and out the doors of the cozy apartments. Their fear becomes one with the call of the wind as they are swept out onto the boulevard and into the waiting arms of the night. Down the boulevard, they see a ball bounding toward them, it is familiar to them from their days near the beach, familiar also from their nightmares, which were always different from those of the grown-ups and which they knew the grown-ups would never be interested in. Under a black and starless sky, the ball seems to shine with its own interior glow, flaunting its bright colors. Two by two, they fall into step behind it. As they march down the irreality of the pitch-dark boulevard, the children's distress reaches a peak. They begin to lose the selves they once knew. They pass the Grand Bandstand, a concrete shell that once upon a time hosted boisterous sing-alongs and upbeat martial bands. It is silent and empty now, an oversized hand reaching up through the ground. Then the children turn down toward the beach. The sea is creeping up to meet them. In orderly pairs, they march into the water, helpless now to alter their fate. When the last pair disappeared beneath the surface, the wind turned back toward the sea as suddenly as it blew up. Quieter now, but just as insistent. Next morning, the adults sleep in, still foggy from their efforts to drown the sea and the sky and the wind and the sewer-haunted dreams in alcohol. Upon waking, a sense of panic sweeps the boulevard. Parents congregate outside their rooms, then head outdoors looking for the children. On the beach, they see smallish footsteps in rows of two heading toward the water, an inescapable procession into the slowly advancing sea. One woman emits a keening wail, but her husband pulls her face into his chest to stifle it. A few sob quietly, but they are soon shushed by the others. After a while, everyone just stands quietly, doing and saying nothing. Finally, one of them offers to take his car and check out the causeway. When he returns, he reports they are still cut off. But it looked like maybe the water went 
down a little bit. The others turn their heads to the sky, shielding their eyes against its radiance. I can feel it on my face. There's something, a woman says. There's certainly a little warmth in it. Don't you agree? Another says. No one takes a nap today. They want to be sure they won't dream. Instead, they wander the boulevard and narrowing beach, looking up at the sun, hopeful, commenting to each other about the possibility that something is finally changing. A couple of the bolder ones are whispering. That guy, the one ranting on the beach, he did say it wanted its children, didn't he? One says. He knew things. You could tell, another replies. By evening, the spirits of the remaining visitors are buoyant as they eat their takeout dinners and sip wine or beer. Things may finally be starting to improve, they tell themselves. They go to bed early, hopeful for the next day. But the vengeance of the wind is multiplied that night. Like their children the night before, they hide under their covers and cling to each other as to float wood. And then the sound starts. From the walls facing the beach come a series of resonant slapping noises. Each slap followed immediately by a light ping. The sounds increase in frequency. Unable to sleep and overcome with dread, the visitors go to the windows that look out on the shore. From the thick gloom emerge flashes of color, bright reds and oranges, unnatural hues of blue and green, flashing suddenly out of the dark, slamming into the buildings and just as suddenly careening back into the darkness. Over and over, beach balls fling themselves at the visitors, safe for now behind the walls of their lodgings. Nonetheless, the visitors rush back to bed, holding their ears against the persistent crashing and popping of inflated plastic and the onslaught of the wind. By morning, it is quiet again. The visitors stir from their comfortless beds, shuffle onto the boulevard, and look upon a scene reminiscent of a paint factory explosion. The walls of buildings facing the water are splattered with grotesque colors from the night before. The boulevard has been turned into a colored confetti nightmare, smeared with shining lime greens, fire engine reds, electric blues, and incandescent shades of orange. The storefronts and hotel facades have been haphazardly refinished in otherworldly colors, a mockery of summertime festiveness. Loose edges of plastic flap lifelessly in the morning breeze, like mottled, rotting skin. Here and there, the remains of unnaturally white smiles, plastic smiles, leer from the verandas and flagpoles. The visitors look up at a sky blazing with light, and then they look out to the sea. There are no boats, no rescuers in sight. The water is as leaden as ever, a flowing, endless gray. There is no hint of light reflecting on its surface. It has advanced most of the way up the beach, moving imperceptibly, patiently, without waves or current. That was Arthur Stah's Vacancies, a Tales to Terrify original, as read by our own Scott Silk.
Scott Silk spends long days staring into the dark heart of corporations and is forbidden to speak about what he sees there. In his spare time, his interests include reading, writing, urban gardening, tattoos, cartoons, seeing how long he can let his hair grow, and not wearing pants. Originally from rural western Pennsylvania, he now lives in Brooklyn with his girlfriend, two cats, and a collection of houseplants. He can sometimes be found babbling about speculative fiction and his other interests on Twitter as at ScottSilk13. Thank you, Scott. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to update your payment methods. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 